For the past 10 years, Union Pacific has returned 208%. Eight of those years, Lance Fritz was a CEO. During his tenure, the company returned 180%. This is a market-beating performance. But despite those really good results, Union Pacific has essentially fired the CEO, fired him for underperformance. And this came after enormous pressure of a hedge fund called Sorban. Sorban Capital wrote a public letter explaining why the CEO had to go, and we're going to be diving into it. We're going to be going over why the CEO was fired despite having market-beating performance, and why I believe personally that this stock could double over the next two years. Additionally, we have news that Apple iPhones are winning over Gen Z. And importantly, they're winning over Gen Z in other countries, in other continents. We're going to be going over the data here, how Apple is beating Samsung. On the subject of Apple, we also have some rumors from Bloomberg that Apple has made major progress on no-prick blood glucose monitoring. This would be a massive milestone in healthcare for anyone with an Apple Watch, and this would impact the valuation of Apple. We're going to be going over this as well. And finally, we have Steve Eisman of the big short fame. He's one of the individuals like Michael Burry that bet against the financial system during the Great Recession. He's also warning now of a paradigm shift that he thinks a lot of investors are not getting because they have not been investing for long enough. So we're going to go over his warnings and how he's positioning his portfolio. So we have all of that plus much more to get into in this episode of The Joseph Carlson Show. Now let's go ahead and jump right in. Before we jump into my portfolio, I want to look at this headline news that was breaking news Sunday evening. We got reports from CNBC and The Wall Street Journal that Union Pacific plans to name a new CEO this year. Planning to name a new CEO means that the current CEO is stepping down. And in this case, it was not voluntarily. He didn't just decide that it's time for him to retire. He's been pushed out by the board and by a hedge fund called Sorban Capital. Sorban Capital is a hedge fund that manages over $10 billion, and they've been privately writing the team at Union Pacific, the board at Union Pacific letters, expressing their strong suggestion that the CEO step down. And finally, they decided to put enough pressure by making the letter public. So here we have a public letter from this hedge fund. We're going to be going over it and going over the reasoning of why this hedge fund wanted the CEO to step down. Because when we look at the numbers, if we bring up Union Pacific here on Qualtrim, if we bring up the price chart, we go to the past 10 years, the current CEO has been a CEO for eight years. During that time period, the company has returned around 180%. That's beat the S&P 500. So a lot of investors are a little bit perplexed. Why would we want a new CEO when this company is being market beating? And that is what this, this letter answers. It explains in detail the reasoning for this, the reasoning they're pushing for this being a large shareholder of the company. Now we're going to go into this letter, but before we do, I want to first go over my investment into Union Pacific and how this plays into it. I have the passive income portfolio. This is a portfolio of real money. It's my real invested capital. I add to this portfolio with new money every single week. And the goal with it is to outperform the market over a long period of time and to do so by not taking on much risk. What I basically do is I identify industries in which they have great dividend paying companies. And these are industries that have more than just dividend payers, but I identify companies that I think are the best companies in the world. I think the top 5% of companies in the world are the ones that I'm looking for, the ones that I'm searching through. And then I'm identifying the top 1% 
of those top 5%. So the type of companies that I'm looking for, they're in industries that are highly concentrated, that have high barriers to entry, that are typically monopolistic and have great economics. For example, when I look in the financial industry, the companies that I've found that I think are the best in the financial category are S&P Global and MasterCard. Visa is another one that would fit here well. But I invested in the S&P Global and MasterCard because they have wide moats. They have incredibly powerful economics. They have very little risk associated with the companies. And these are two that I've made new investments this year. In the tech category, I've identified two companies that I think are incredibly high quality, which is Apple and Microsoft. In real estate, I've bought the REIT that I think is the highest quality REIT in the market, which is Vici. In the restaurant category, I've bought two companies that I think are above others in the industry, Texas Roadhouse and Starbucks. In the consumer category, amongst a lot of different branded companies and retailers, I purchased the ones that I think are the highest quality. Costco, Nike, Pepsi, and Estee Lauder, with a majority of my position in Costco. And then finally, in industrials. Now, in industrials, I could have invested in a lot of different companies. I could have picked 3M or Intel or FedEx, or waste management. There's a lot of different industrial companies to pick from. The two that I think are the best in the world, the two that I think are the highest quality within the sector are Union Pacific and Canadian Pacific. I really think that any of the class one railroads right now are great investments. They're highly concentrated. They have incredibly high barriers to entry. They're highly regulated industry with great economics. And even though they do require a little bit of capex to continue to run the business it's actually lower in proportion than a lot of the big tech companies so in my opinion i think that these companies will both be market beating by a significant amount over the next five years i also believe that union pacific has the chance to double in price over the next couple of years of course there's no guarantees but this is the argument that this hedge fund is making and since the ceo was announced that he's going to step down this year the company stock price is up 10 percent just today. So investors are very happy about this change, but in my opinion, I think the stock is still undervalued even after today's price jump. So let's go ahead and jump into the letter here. And again, this is a letter that got the CEO fired. And it's from Sorban, which manages around $10 billion and has a major investment in Union Pacific. As you know, I have been a longtime investor in the North American Class 1 railroad industry. I still vividly remember my first visit to Omaha in 2005, shortly after Union Pacific moved into its new corporate headquarters. My interactions at the time with Jim Young and Rob Knight, with whom I later became friends, cemented my enthusiasm for the future of the industry and my long-standing belief that Union Pacific is a crown jewel asset of the North American transportation sector. Union Pacific's rail network has many distinct advantages, including long length of haul, unparalleled reach across a high-growth geographic service territory, and a merchandise-heavy product mix. At Sorban Capital, Union Pacific has been a significant investment for our firm dating back to the second quarter of 2007. 16. We have appreciated our interactions with you and other board members since we first met in 2017. Today, Sorban owns a $1.6 billion stake in Union Pacific, making our firm a top 10 economic owner of the company. That's a nice welcoming paragraph. And keep in mind that he's invested in not just Union Pacific, but he mentions that he's invested in the entire class one rail industry. So he sees this overall industry as a good place to be. Moving on, we get into the changes that they want. The board needs to replace Lance Fritz with best. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. In class leadership, Lance Fritz is the current CEO. As you are aware, we have been consistent in privately expressing to you and other board members our displeasure with years of persistent operating underperformance at Union Pacific and our long-held view that the current management is not capable of driving strong operating performance. What a tone change from one paragraph to the other. From the beginning, they're just saying they're great relationships and how they're, they're good friends. And then this next paragraph, they're saying that you're underperforming and the current management is incapable of driving operating performance. This most recently includes our August 2022 board level discussion, where we highlighted the gravity of today's challenges. Regrettably, acute operating issues at Union Pacific have continued, and we see a heightened risk of permanent damage to the franchise if left unaddressed. While it is highly atypical for Sorban to publicly disclose our communication with a board of directors, Given the board's prolonged inaction, despite years of underperformance, we feel it is critical for the company's future that we highlight the need for Mr. Fritz to be replaced with best-in-class leadership. So right there, they say, we've been writing you privately, trying to allow you to save face for a number of years, but we're running impatient. It's time to make change. We're now putting it in the public sphere. We're now putting significantly more pressure on you. So this is something that the union board could have addressed a number of years ago in private. Now we get into the part of this letter that I think is the most damning to the current leadership. Even though the company has performed well, if you look at total returns, when you put it in contrast with the entire industry, it hasn't been performing that well. Under Mr. Fritz's eight-year tenure as CEO, Union Pacific has ranked the worst in every key railroad operating metric. Union Pacific has ranked the worst in safety, volume growth, revenue growth, cost management, EBIT growth, and total shareholder returns. These are highly underwhelming results despite Union Pacific having the premier railroad franchise in North America, and we assume you share our disappointment given that Mr. Fritz has consistently failed to meet the annual incentive compensation targets set by the board. So this hedge fund is pointing out that the board of directors has to be disappointed as well. They're not reaching their incentive targets and getting their compensation packages. So replacing the CEO could benefit both the board, the company overall, and the shareholders. Now they put up this table here, and I think that this is the single most damning part of this entire presentation, of this entire letter. Union Pacific is the worst, number seven. Under cost management, they're the worst, EBIT growth, total shareholder returns, and overall. When you weighed out all the rankings, they're overall the worst as well. Seven out of seven in every single category. Now it's interesting to look at these in terms of rankings overall with the different companies. Canadian Pacific, for example, is the second best. And this company has obliterated the total market over the past 10 years. It's really crushed it. KSU is ranked the best out of all the class one railroads. Now, something that I think is worth pointing out, the biggest point here and my first big takeaway is that Union Pacific has performed the worst out of all of their competitors. They have six different class one railroad companies here, which Union Pacific competes against. And these are companies in the exact same industry doing the exact same thing. Union Pacific has performed the worst and still been market beating. This is how good of an industry this is. The worst player in the industry has still beat the market over the past five years and the past 10 years. The best companies in the industry, 
KSU and Canadian Pacific have completely crushed the market. So what this means to me as a shareholder of Union Pacific is that if these operating metrics can be improved to be more in line with the top tier ones, if volume growth can be improved, revenue growth, cost management, if that can be improved, look at the potential upside here. There's still more upside with a company that's been outperforming. Now, they also point out how Mr. Fritz has lost the confidence of the shareholders, employees, customers, and regulators. So every stakeholder in the company no longer has confidence in the CEO. And that can be reflected in the stock price and in the current multiple of the company. Union Pacific trades at a P.E. ratio of 18. That's a low P.E. ratio for a company like Union Pacific. They say key constituents have understandably lost confidence in Mr. Fritz's ability to lead the company. Union Pacific's total shareholder returns has been the worst in the industry. Among all S&P 500 companies, Union Pacific is rated by employees as the worst place to work and as the lowest employee CEO approval ranking. This is literally 500th out of 500. That's not an exaggeration. They are the worst ranked company in the entire S&P 500 for companies to work for. That is something that I think is difficult to actually accomplish. The company is not delivering on its commitment to customers, and the Surface Transportation Board regulator has singled out Union Pacific as providing the worst service among Class 1 railroads. So the valuation of the company is low, the ranking amongst its own employees is the worst in the S&P 500, and they're becoming a target for regulators because of how poor their service is. So they're pointing out a lot of problems here, but what I like that this hedge fund does is they also point out, I think, a very viable solution. They're very specific in their remedy for this problem. Not only do they want the current CEO to be fired, but they have this specific candidate that they want to have replace him. As has been historically demonstrated, installing experienced operational leadership across the railroad industry has consistently and dramatically improved outcomes. It will be no different at Union Pacific. Indeed, when the board brought on Jim Vina, an operational expert with deep railroading experience, as the COO to fix Union Pacific's operations in 2019, he very quickly established what was possible for the company, rapidly transforming Union Pacific from an underperforming to a top-performing railroad, only to inexplicably be allowed to walk away after less than two years. Operations almost immediately reverted to worst-in-class levels without Mr. Vena. Fortunately, as it relates to the new leadership, there is no need to start from scratch. Mr. Vena has remained engaged in the industry following his departure from Union Pacific, and we believe he would be keen to return to Union Pacific in a new leadership role. So they've already picked out the guy that they believe can do the job the external candidate who is Mr. Vena. They think that he should become the CEO. Now, in a separate presentation that this hedge fund made that accompanies this letter, they outline different leaderships and the operating results. And they actually made a graphic that illustrates this. If we look at it, this metric going down is a good thing. So the lower the percentages means the better the company's operating. And since 2004 to 2014, the numbers were dropping dramatically. That is before the current leadership. Then you have Union Pacific's current leadership. It went from 64% to 63, back up to 64, 63, and 63. So basically, the operational gains that this company was making flatlined after the previous leadership left and the current leadership got into place. Then you have Jim Vena, this guy that was the COO for two short years. He brought it from 63% to 61, all the way down to 56. 
So really good gains during his short tenure as the COO, and then he leaves the company. Current CEO is still in place, and those numbers start to trend back up right to where they were before. And this is why they want him back in place. They believe that he can improve the company dramatically and quickly. So they've successfully gotten rid of the current CEO. They wanna get this new person as the new CEO, and then they outline what they think the actual results will be, how this company will actually grow tremendously over the next couple of years. They say, as we outlined in the attached slides, we believe that with best-in-class leadership, there is a path for Union Pacific to generate $18 of earnings per share in 2025, a 16% compounded annual growth rate of 2022's earnings per shares. 16% is not out of this realm. That's not something that's insane earnings growth. I think it's great. I actually think that's really fast earnings growth, but it's not unrealistic. It's not out of the realm of possibility. They say, furthermore, we believe that investors will reward this higher growth with a valuation more in line with Union Pacific's Canadian Railroad pairs. Right now, Canadian Pacific trades at a 22 multiple. They say a 21 times forward PE ratio. And other high quality US industrial companies trade at a 25 times forward PE ratio. Compared to today's low 16 times forward PE ratio for Union Pacific. As a result, we believe the stock price has the potential to double over the next two years, adding on $67 billion increase in market capitalization versus the status quo. So that's some pretty big estimations there. We look at this and they think $18 per share in 2025. On a Ford PE of 21, that's a stock price of around $378. We look at what Union Pacific trades at right now, and it's $210. So going from 210 to 378 in a year is a massive increase in stock price. And they actually lay out how big of an impact this would have. What they outline is with what they call best-in-class management, the upside over the next two years for Union Pacific is 104%. That is an internal rate of return or an annualized return of 47% per year. Obviously, this would be largely market beating. It would be massive outperformance. The big question here is, is this realistic? When I actually look at their assumptions here, I don't think they're too crazy. I don't think these assumptions are way out of line. We have 16% compounded earnings growth. Union Pacific is a great earnings growth company. They can generate a ton of free cash flow. They can do a massive amount of buybacks, and they can also pay dividends at the same time. An 18 earnings per share in 2025 is not out of the question. And would investors bid the company back up from a 16 to a 21? I think there's a good chance. Lots of companies go from a 16 Ford PE ratio to a 21 or even up to a 25 if the future looks brighter, if the leadership looks better, if the outlook looks better. So if investors become more positive with their sentiment on Union Pacific, we could see both earnings growth and multiple expansion at the same time. So overall, I agree. I think there is a chance for over 100% returns over the next two years with this company. I think it comes from a low starting point of a 16 Ford PE in an industry that's a really incredible industry. And even if it falls short of this, even if we get 30% per year and it returns 70, 80% over the next two years, that would be fine. But I think we do have a realistic potential of a stock doubling here over the next two years. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy about this hedge fund pushing for changes in both the safety and the operating performance of Union Pacific. And I'll be paying attention and seeing if they put in Jim Vena as the new CEO. If they do, I'll likely add even more to my position. Right now, I consider Union Pacific to be widely undervalued 
even despite today's 10% stock price bump. Now moving on, we have another company in my portfolio, Apple, that has some pretty big news. Not only is it reported that they're winning over Gen Z. Gen Z's like the older teenagers to early 20s age around there. Apple's winning over that market, and that's a very important market to win over for a phone maker. They, they highlight that this isn't just in the US, from Europe to Asia, Apple's market lead in the premium bracket is growing, and polls show that people in their teens and early 20s, known as the Gen Z. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Increasingly see the iPhone as a must-have. That is something that's like music to your ears if you're an Apple investor. Their products continually being seen as a must-have. The trend is putting Apple's chief rival, Samsung, under pressure and threatening the South Korean company's lead in the overall global smartphone market. They say that Samsung has been promoting its splashy foldable phones and 100 times zoom cameras. The latest Galaxy S23 Ultra brought a wow from Elon Musk on Twitter. Apple's clout has been growing since the company opened its first store in South Korea in 2018. Apple now has four stores in the country where its mobile payment system, Apple Pay, will soon become available for the first time. So Apple's expanding their reach into places like South Korea and gaining market share from Samsung. They're also, I think, on the cusp of making a major breakthrough in healthcare technology, specifically related to blood glucose monitoring, which would heavily impact how we view and treat diabetes. All about the watch, all about healthcare, all about glucose tracking. Really the holy grail for a smartwatch to be able to tell you all of your health metrics. And one of the most important health metrics, as we all know, is blood sugar or blood glucose monitoring. You want to know how much glucose is in your body because that's an indicator of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes or other health conditions. And today, getting that data requires the prick of a skin, right, or a blood draw from your veins. What Apple wants to do is it wants to create a system using chips, sensors, software algorithms built into the Apple Watch to get a read on how much glucose you have in your blood without needing a blood sample. Now, I've been saying this for a while. The iPhone right now is the driving product for Apple's growth, for their earnings, for their revenue. They have the App Store that they have that toll bridge monopoly on that they make all of that money. But I think the next step for Apple is in healthcare. And I think that the Apple Watch has the potential to become more important to the business than the phone. That's how big of an impact I think this would have. Now, figuring this out, I think, is remarkable. They've been working on this for five years, and Mark Gunman here explains how they're figuring this out. Well, two terms I'll give you. One, optical spectroscopy, right? <laughs> and the other, silicon photonics. Those are some pretty hardcore types of technologies that Apple is working on to make this happen, right? This means that the technology will use a chip that can output light or lasers right into your skin and read how much glucose is in your what's known as interstitial fluid that's the fluid that comes out of your blood capillaries and everyone has that fluid across their body and it could use lasers shoots through your skin 
and then it has sensors that could read right the concentration of light in your skin to know how much glucose is there in order to get that reading. That seems simple enough, right? Just simple stuff like that that Apple's working on. I actually think it's difficult to overstate how significant of an impact this would have, a positive impact on people's health. They say in this report that if perfected, such a breakthrough would be a boon for diabetics and help cement Apple as a powerhouse in healthcare. Adding the monitoring system to the Apple Watch, the ultimate goal, would also make the device an essential item for millions of diabetics around the world. And this is where I think they have the phrasing wrong. If you had something that could monitor your blood glucose levels, that doesn't just make it a necessity, an essential item for current diabetics. That's one market that would for sure benefit from it. But anybody that's concerned or even remotely concerned about becoming diabetic over time because of their eating habits or because of genetics or whatever reason, they could have this device to prevent them from ever developing diabetes. They could monitor their sugar intake. They could get warnings of becoming pre-diabetic. That is such a bigger impact than just people that suffer from diabetes alone. This could help prevent millions of people from ever developing this disease in the first place. So I'm going to continue to hold Apple, not just for the potential of these type of long shot bets, but because of their core business. Apple has such an incredible core business that if they can continue doing what they're doing, plus work on these type of long shot bets and have a couple of them turn out, I think we'll have significant performance with a stock like this while the company's doing a lot of good for the world. Now moving on, we have to go over this paradigm shift from Steve Eisman. He's not one that gets as much fame as Michael Burry, but he made very similar of a bet. He bet against the financial system in 2007. He made a bunch of money doing that. He was played by Steve Carell in The Big Short. Now he goes over, first of all, why he thinks things are a little bit crazy right now and why he's buying bonds. Bonds, especially treasuries, I mean, I like 4.8 over 4 because 4.8 is bigger than 4. But it's only two years. And if we're going, if it's going to really this, slow in, down. In this world, two years is an awfully long time. Yeah. So first of all, he is buying two-year treasuries that have an interest yield of 4.8%. The next thing that he does is he outlines what a paradigm shift is and which one he thinks has happened over the past couple of years. I like uh, a paradigm uh, shift. What uh, paradigm shift are you talking well, about? Well, let me define paradigm, first of all. It's um, a set of assumptions that are so deeply embedded in your head, you don't mm -hmm. even know they're there. You don't believe in your paradigm, you inhabit it. Mm -hmm. And that applies to investing, just as it applies to a lot of other different things. And you know, the paradigm that has existed for the last 10 years has been that because rates have been zero, people have been paid to take risk. And so they've invested in tech stocks, and they've invested in hyper-growth stocks, meaning big revenue growth, no earnings, and valuation be damned. I think that sounds accurate. Investors for the past 10 years have been rewarded for taking on risk. With low interest rates, higher risk meant higher reward. And the valuations got pushed up further and further. The company's fundamentals got weaker and weaker. Just taking on risk was rewarded, and he believes that this is changing. And just like others have said, just like Terry Smith, just like Howard Marks, he doesn't think we're returning right back to where we were anytime soon. Assuming that we take the Fed at its word, which is obviously questionable, and rates will stay higher for much longer, I think the days of people beating the market by just investing in tech are going to be over. And we're going to go to a new paradigm, which I'm not 100% sure where that's going to be because we won't really know until we get there. But I think it's going to, I mean, there'll still be tech stocks to invest in. But I think the days of investing in companies that have no earnings or have multiples of 200 times will be gone. 
Um, there'll be a lot of more themes like infrastructure, maybe greenification, um, bringing back onshoring of, of the industrial sector in the United States. It's not clear yet, but I think that's where the market's going to go. So he's more confident in what he doesn't think will happen than what he does think will happen. He does not think the strategy of buying in to the fast growing, no profitability tech companies at very high valuations is going to work out anymore. That's something that was a paradigm shift of the past. The past 10 years, you could do that. In 2021, it showed us that that era came to an end. And again, I agree with Steve Eisman here. I'm not incredibly sure what future we go into, but I think there is going to be a dramatic change. And if I had to make predictions myself, I think that true organic earnings growth is going to be very difficult to come by. So I think companies that can continue to grow their earnings at a fast pace every single year, despite a slowdown in the overall economy, I think those companies are going to be rewarded. So my portfolio, I'm focusing on those companies that I think have really strong market positions, trade at reasonable valuations, and have really good earnings growth profiles. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you want more content, be sure to check out the Patreon. Other than that, I'll see you in the next one.